every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to the start of a brand new month. And to kick things off, it's also Fed Day for the first time this year. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk for Thursday, the 1st of February. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the US Federal Reserve has left interest rates at a 23-year high, while offering little certainty about the path ahead for borrowing costs. The decision from the Fed left the target range for its benchmark Fed funds rate unchanged at 5.25% to 5.5% for the fourth meeting in a row. The Fed's statement on Wednesday no longer floated the possibility of higher rates, but policymakers indicated they would need more time before deciding to lower borrowing costs. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said the bank was looking for greater confidence that inflation would continue to fall. He added a March rate cut is probably not the most likely case. China's manufacturing activity contracted in January for the fourth month in a row, despite policymakers' efforts to boost confidence in the recovery. The National Bureau of Statistics manufacturing PMI stood at 49.2. That matched economists' forecast and edged higher from December's six-month low of 49. However, it was the fourth straight month of contraction in factory activity. The non-manufacturing PMI climbed to 50.7 in January from 50.4 in December. That was slightly above economists' forecast. It was the 13th straight month of expansion in services activity and the strongest pace since last September. Hong Kong's economy grew by a less than expected 3.2% last year, held back by the economic slowdown in mainland China and high US interest rates. The first GDP estimate for the territory's economy was less than the 3.4% predicted by economists. The full-year GDP figure was in line with the 3.2% forecast by Financial Secretary Paul Chan in November, but left the economy's performance short of the government's earlier estimate of 4-5% growth. On today's programme, I'm joined by, by Andrew Ferris. CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. And with a view from South Korea, it's Peter Kim, Head of Global Investment Strategy at KB Financial Group in Seoul. If you have any questions or comments, please post them on my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks closed at their session lows Wednesday, with the Nasdaq leading the declines after the Fed left rates unchanged as expected and signalled that rate cuts were not imminent. The S&P 500 fell 1.6% to 4,846, suffering its worst performance going back to September. The Dow fell 317 points, or 0.8%, to close at 38,150 for its worst day since December. And the Nasdaq Composite lost 2.2% to finish the session at 15,164 and notch its worst session dating back to October. All three indices posted a third straight month of gains. The S&P 500 rose 1.2% in January. The Dow added 1.2% last month, while the Nasdaq increased by 1% over the same period. U.S. government debt rallied and yields fell Wednesday after economic data on both sides of the Atlantic hinted at cooling price pressures. The yield on benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasuries fell 12 basis points to 3.93%, while the yield on interest rate sensitive two-year Treasuries fell 15 basis points to 4.21%. 
The US dollar index rebounded to trade above 103.5 on Wednesday. That's 0.1% higher on the day. And for the month of January, the dollar index rose 2.1%. The yen was the outperformer Wednesday, following a hawkish BOJ summary of opinions, which discussed the possibility of ending Japan's negative interest rate policy. The yen climbed half a percent to 146.89 Japanese yen per dollar. The yuan was almost unmoved in Shanghai at 7.16 and three quarters renminbi after the official Chinese manufacturing PMI remained in contractionary territory. Gold ended the day 0.1% higher at $2,039 an ounce and for the month it fell 1.1%. Oil prices notched the first monthly gain since September. The Brent contract for March settled at $80.55 a barrel, down 2.4% on the day. Brent was up 4.5% for the month. And Bitcoin was 2.2% lower and trading at 42,630. It was down 1%, sorry, 1.7% for January. Mainland Chinese A shares slumped to a five-year low after Chinese manufacturing activity contracted. The CSI index of the largest listed shares in Shanghai and Shenzhen slid 0.9%. It's a five-year low for the month of January. It lost 6.3%. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index, that slumped 218 points. That's 1.4%. To close at 15,485 on Wednesday. For the month of January, the city's benchmark index was down 9.2%. The worst start to a year since January 2016 and the worst monthly performance since February 2023. Losses were widespread across all sectors. The tech index tumbled 3% taking its losses for the month to over 20%. does look like we're going to have a small rebound in the Hang Seng this morning. Futures markets pointing to a gain of 30 points at the open, uh, with the index starting at just above 15,500. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Plenty of important headlines to discuss this morning, so let's get straight to our guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. And also we have with us Andrew Sullivan, who is founder of Asian Market Sense. Morning as well, Andrew. Good morning. The US Federal Reserve, as you heard there, left interest rates at a 23-year high. And they offered little certainty about the path ahead either for borrowing costs. The decision from the Fed left the target rate for its benchmark Fed funds rate unchanged at five and a quarter to five and a half percent for the fourth meeting in a row. The Fed statement on Wednesday no longer floated the possibility of higher rates, but policymakers indicated they would need more time before deciding to lower borrowing costs. In a post-meeting press conference, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell acknowledged that most members expect to start reducing rates this year, but said for now the bank was looking for greater confidence that inflation would continue to fall. Mr Powell said it would likely be appropriate to begin dialing back policy restraints at some point this year, but the economy has surprised forecasters in many ways since the pandemic and ongoing progress towards our 2% inflation objective is not assured. And he added a March cut is probably not the most likely case. Um, Andrew, Andrew Ferris, no surprise for you here. I think you've been saying for a while that the Fed isn't going to cut anywhere near as fast as the market's been expecting. And you've also highlighted the futility of trying to guess what the Fed is going to do next. I think the Fed must be listening to you. No, well, hardly actually, but I'm overwhelmed by indifference again. So yeah, that's 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 the that's the end of the story. Very much par for the course. 
and uh, we, we stay on. I have no idea what else can be said other than they have been very consistent in saying unless and when they are absolutely sure that inflation is going to go down to two and then stay at two. It's not a matter of hitting a two and then ding goes the bell and we cut rates and stays at two. And for me, that means an inflation rate of about 2% for at least half a year before you say, yeah, it's going to stay there. Okay, and uh, we are looking actually towards the end of uh, of this year rather than anything else. Mm. Uh, or they will cut in interest rates. I'm wondering what it would take for them to make them confident that uh, inflation is back at 2%, is going to stay at 2%, because I think um, they must be um, haunted by the fact that they got badly burnt, didn't they, in late 2021, when they thought high inflation was going to be transitory, and then they got caught by surprise when it was higher and more persistent than expected. Is that weighing on them, and they want to avoid making the same mistake twice? Well, it, 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 it has to be so. It has to be so. Um, I think I will be able, I'm not, going, I'm not going to preempt at all what you're going to ask us later. But whilst all this is going on, it's very important to remember that in November, we have, uh, we have elections in the United States. And my God, incredibly important elections. Now, the Fed is famous for being completely un, unfazed and completely unaffected whether they are cutting interest rates or increasing interest rates before or after an election. So in other words, given that I'm thinking that this is going to drag long enough for the inflation for inflation to be to begin to be looming in the in the background and if the fed let's say starts cutting sometime in june or in july then oh boy we're getting very near and then will the fed continue to favor biden by cutting interest rates or trounce trump by actually stopping cutting of interest rates and taking a deep breath and frankly Again, I'm sorry, I'm preempting a little bit, Peter, here, and I do apologize, is I've already made my list of all the firms that I would suggest to my clients to buy in the case that Trump wins. Okay, well, well, an unbelievably uncomfortable feeling. Okay, there you go. <laughs> okay, Andrew Sullivan, what are your thoughts? You know, I think he's right. I mean, um, Powell has been very consistent and he's been pushing back about against these people that expect the early rate cuts. Uh, they want to see definite uh, definite uh, signs there that inflation is under control. And he's always made it clear that the last mile is going to be the hardest. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think there's nothing new there and uh, people should actually just listen to what the Fed are saying. I mean, we have said for years, don't fight the Fed. And yet for the last year or so, the market has been determined to try and fight the Fed on this. Uh, and it's not going to win because at the end of the day, the FOMC is the one that makes the decision. So it's as simple as that. And they're still the markets are still fighting the Fed, aren't they? Even after even after today. Yeah, I mean, and it makes no sense, really, because, you know, the. They are trying to give guidance to the market, and the market clearly doesn't want to hear what it's being told. It will go its own way, but it won't. It won't come out victorious in this instance, because at the end of the day, it's the it's the Fed members that make the, that decision, um, and they will be influenced by the data, not by what the market wants. There's something for everyone, though, here, isn't there? Because they sort of struck this balance between getting rid of their hiking bias, which was in the previous statement, but then at the same time saying they're not close to easing yet. So, Mark. Could take this any way they wanted, really. 
Well, yeah, but I mean, they're still trying to guide the market. And I mean, that's effectively, you know, the, the Fed wants an easy life. It wants it wants to give guidance to the market without giving away all its ammunition. Um, the fact is, for the last couple of years, though, the market has been uh, resolute in not listening. Uh, and, it, you know, it's got its, you know, for want of a better phrase, it's got its knickers in a twist on a number of occasions because the Fed hasn't done what it was hoping the Fed would do rather than uh, listening to what the, gu- the Fed was guiding it was going to do. Mm-hmm. I, 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 have a, I, have a, I have a secret desire to blame all these to, to the markets, as you say, that they have got their undergarments in a complicated situation, and that's putting it politically correct. And that is all the bloody traders there are a millennial walks and of course they wouldn't know okay reality if it came and sat on their faces and uh, i blame all of it on the millennials there you go all right <laughs> i apologize I think, I think that's right i mean i think the, the, the trouble is so many people just haven't been through this inflationary experience for them the norm is to have rates at zero uh you know you have to be older than 15 years in the market to have seen interest rates higher and some of us you know were there when soros took a you know a run against the pound and pushed rates all the way up to 15 percent. which i guess some of these millennials would be um you know they'd be in apoplexy at, at that sort of thought Apologies oh, to well, uh, apologies to all millennials who are listening. <laughs> <laughs> apologies to all millennials who are listening. Let's move on because there's more things happening. Hong Kong, the economy grew by less than expected, three point two percent last year. Um, and that compares to the previous year when the city's economy contracted 3.7%. For the fourth quarter, the economy was up 4.3% year on year. Uh, that was up from a 4.1% rise in the previous period. Andrew, either one of you, do um, see, are you seeing signs of improvement in the Hong Kong economy? Uh, I see it flat and indifferent again. The individual components fell as predicted. In other words, either fell negatively or they fell from the previous uh, level, and that is uh, uh, consumer consumer spending, uh, business investment. And of course, let's not forget it, we just had the numbers for the annual tourist level, 33 million, 33 point something million. Uh, I remember very clearly year 17, 18, okay, we were hitting 65 million. That's half. In other words, half the tourists have disappeared. And I have a terrible feeling they ain't coming back. In other words, the notion that in a year's time we're going to see tourist flows back to the pre-COVID level of in the 60s, okay, I think it's just just is not going to happen. And of course, this is terrible because that means literally half the people that used to come and occupy spaces in hotels and in restaurants are not going to be there. Mm. Well, we're in a bit these of are all, these are all 95% mainland Chinese. Let's be also very, very blunt about it. In other words, it's the Chinese that decided not to come back to Hong Kong, not Germans, French, uh, Swedes, or whatever. And Andrew, Andrew Sullivan, we're in a bit of a difficult position here, aren't we? Because locals are now going abroad to spend money and spending more than abroad than they are here at the moment when they go, you know, you take into account their weekends in Shenzhen, while fewer people are coming here uh, to spend money. That's not, a good, um, that's not a good situation, really, is it, given our dependence on tourism? Well, I don't. Yes, I mean, I think this dependence on tourism is a bit of a fallacy, really. I mean, mainlanders used to come here when they thought 
that uh, the the products they were buying in China were fake and they relied on Hong Kong for the real thing and also before you know they could they could buy it here and 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 sneak it back over the mark over the border and not pay tax on it now China has tightened up on that as well so i think a lot of that mainland tourism business was never going to really be uh, long term anyway and unlike japan hong kong isn't a tourist destination i mean we we've done very well in the past because mainlanders wanted to come here when it was a novelty uh, and they could use it to go en route to macau uh, but they don't need to do that anymore. And most of them have visited Macau and now want to go elsewhere. Uh, we don't have the shopping advantage that we used to have. Our prices are much higher. You know, retail rents have not come down as significantly uh, as you would expect, and neither have hotels. Uh, the cost in hotels has remained high. Uh, and it's therefore, it's not surprising that people aren't coming here when they can get better value uh, and, and more interest in other places. If we get some Fed rate cuts later this year, how much is that going to support the Hong Kong economy? I, I think the only thing it's going to really help is a little bit on the property side as far as mortgage rates go. And there's data out today saying that underwater mortgages in Hong Kong have doubled in the last three months. Now, it's only 25,000 properties or so. But I mean, that is because house prices are coming down. Uh, and they're coming down because there isn't the demand from, uh, from expats or from uh, locals to the same extent that we've historically seen. Part of that is just because the prices are just too high. Uh, and, and that is something the government hasn't taken any action to uh, to try and reduce. And, and they still don't seem to view that as a problem. Uh, but for a lot of you know young workers who are looking to get on that uh, onto the housing ladder, it is an issue and it's something that's not going to go away. Andrew and Andrew Ferris, we've got a new national security law coming targeting acts of espionage, treason, foreign political uh, influence. There's just going to be a four week uh, consulting period on this to get people's um, views. Uh, one of the things in it um, is they want to uh, address um, what they call modern day espionage, including the spread of false information that interferes with the city's affairs. And also the pr proposed legislation states information related to the economic and social development of the city, um, as well as policy decisions and scientific technology could be considered state secrets. So this mirrors language very much in mainland China's legislation. What sort of impact do you think that's going to have? Well, I, I took, uh, there, was, there were several articles that allowed me to sit down and do a spreadsheet whereby I put the existing law that was passed by the National People's Congress and it was added on, I think it is Appendix 26 of their, of their constitution and the outline of the new one. And, um, you know, I took, I took it to, to sort of uh, 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 spreadsheets and put them one on top of the other. And uh, there was a fairly complete coincidence with only a few areas where the Hong Kong is breaking a new ground, and that is treason. Now, I have no idea what is the legal definition of treason. All I knew is that if you were treasonous in the UK, you got hanged. Okay, but uh, more than that, I have, I have no idea what, uh, what that means. So I don't seem to find significant, big, lumpy differences, except, of course, the devil is in the details. And unfortunately, or fortunately, and I think the government knows that, and I'm not being careful here in, not, uh, in order to, 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 to be nice. I'm being careful here because this is factual as opposed to opinion related. Okay, They do know that the national security law produced an enormous amount of bad publicity for Hong Kong. 
Okay, and continues to do so, and the new version now coming in will be will be will be a, a happy coincidence on those that are determined to bad mouth Hong Kong, and it is also I found it. I'm not quite sure whether it is a good policy to say we're going to set up a commission to counter bad mouth in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. My reaction is is if people want to think what they want to think. That's what they think, and that's what we think here in Hong Kong, in inverted commas. I'm, I'm taking now a devil's advocate view. So bottom line is, is uh, they had to do this. The government had to do it. They had promised that the, the new uh, security law Hong Kong made is going to come through. And I'm sure they are prepared that uh, it's not going to help the publicity of Hong Kong overseas, whether we like it or not, whether we think that people are being disingenuous or ill-tempered or ill-disposed towards Hong Kong. They will take it, they will take through a a toothpick, a a fine tooth comb, and they will find all the points that you have raised. In other words, if I criticize uh, the the movements of uh, tax rates in Hong Kong, is that a treasonous affair? I'm I'm exaggerating now, but uh, you're raising an important point. Andrew Sullivan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly not going to be any benefit. I mean, certainly not for tourists. Uh, nobody wants to go to a lockdown state where the promotion of these sort of uh, rules is is making the headlines. Um, Ancham's survey showed much the same thing. I mean, the, the trouble is that it seems like the administration wants to be more Chinese than China is in, in this legislation. Um, and and that's fine. That's that's how they get paid. But it doesn't really help the economy of Hong Kong at the end of the day. And it's uh, I think the trouble is it's this uh, willingness of the administration here to do everything it can to be more Chinese than China, rather than putting the interests of the Hong Kong economy first. And how do you think businesses are going to react to this? I mean, they must read this and, and wonder, you know, where you're p- basically providing documents that could relate to major policy decisions. Let's suppose you provide that to your clients or an overseas office. Documents remain uh, related to economic and social developments. Uh, that could basically be a state um, secret. I wonder how businesses deal with that. But I think they're very I'm worried I have my own Bloomberg screen, and I'm playing through the nose for that. And, uh, of course, it is always packed with articles that say well-placed sources in China that remain anonymous <laughs> are indicating that. Okay, well, uh, I have no idea now how Bloomberg would react to that. And also, let's face it, I will be also reading it uh, in my own screen. Uh, is it a way of uh, this misinformation is being diffused uh, advert inadvertently overtly, <laughs> if you pardon the neologism here. Mm. It's 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 going to be quite tricky. Mm. And Andrew Sullivan, I mean the <laughs> other thing here that if if you publish a statement of fact that is false or misleading, that's now espionage. Well, I mean, the the end of the day, it just means that companies are going to do less and less in Hong Kong. It's going to increase their costs as they have to do their fact checking. Uh, It's going to make them less transparent. And of course, investors prefer transparency and to know what's going on. So in the light of the fact that there are many other venues that people can operate in, I think all we're going to see is, is again, a further brain drain of smart entrepreneurs deciding to set up outside of Hong Kong rather than inside Hong Kong. Hmm. Peter, one, one can repeat and says, damned you do, damned if you don't. The government knew it had to do it legally. 
it was under pressure by the Chinese authorities. We don't know by how much. They brought him in, and with clear eyes, presumably they're realizing that this is God-given to those people outside Hong Kong that wants to criticize Hong Kong. Well, what can we do about it? Expect, uh, you know, hunker down and expect uh, a, a reign of objections. Okay. Um, Andrew, Andrew Sullivan, let me get your thoughts about China Evergrande, ordered into liquidation now, as we know earlier this week, by the Hong Kong court. Liquidators have been um, appointed. How, how do you think this is going to work? Because obviously this is a company may have been liquidated here, but its assets are all in mainland China. Well, I think that's going to be the the thing that everybody's going to watch. I mean, a, are the is the Hong Kong court's authority going to be recognised? And then, when it actually comes to trying to get hold of assets in China, you know, where where do Hong Kong uh, court creditors lie relative to local creditors? Um, and I would imagine that actually there's going to be very little left uh, at the end of the day for the offshore uh, people. And I don't think China worries too much about that uh, in the short term. Uh, unfortunately, I think what would have been good is if it had become a, a proper clearing mechanism where assets were really sold. The trouble is a lot of the valuable assets have already been uh, either sold or, or, or bagged in many respects by the banks. Um, so the fact that it's taken so long to get here is is a concern hopefully if a, if another company were to go down this same route we'd see much swifter action uh, and and secondly you know it, it could have provided a clearing mechanism but again that's not what china wants it doesn't want property values in china to drop dramatically because there's a fire sale uh, what it wants to have happen is that uh, the the homes that Evergrande is still constructing get built and that the suppliers that Evergrande still owes money to get paid so that the economy keeps going. Um, but at some point, somebody's going to have to pay for it. Uh, and at the moment, it looks like uh, you know it's still on that merry-go-round of nobody's paying. Yeah, that's the key thing, isn't it? It's, these losses are there. Someone's got to bear them. Um, probably the only entity that can afford to bear them is the central government. Well, the central government, yes, but I mean, the central government doesn't want to do that. And mm. it, it's, I think it's also quite interesting that we saw the bad debt agencies being rolled into the sovereign wealth agency. Uh, that, I think, is, is largely because, again, so many of these local authorities need uh, a huge amount of a bailout. The central government isn't prepared to do that because it doesn't meet with its uh, politics. Uh, and the only thing that can happen is for these loans to be rescheduled with the sovereign wealth fund, uh, which, again, is really just kicking the, you know, the can down the road and creating a problem for another day. It's, it's interesting, Peter, also that uh, to the degree that we are always are supposed to be subservient and dependent on, on the Chinese authorities, here is... Chinese, sorry, Hong Kongese courts making a decision that impacts directly the debtors, uh, sorry, the creditors of, of Evergrande in China. In other words, uh, here is a, a court that says, okay, it is, it is being liquidated. We don't know how it's going to be liquidated in terms of its assets in China, but they will be continuously under a legal threat. And of course, this will need to be resolved pronto uh, if the Chinese court says yes, Hong Kongese courts have got absolute access to these assets, okay, and they, are, they can appoint their own uh, auditors and uh, fire sale creditors, okay, which is highly unlikely, and that uh, will be Hong Kong having an influence and an impact on mainland China via Hong Kong law. Interesting. Okay. But let's see what happens. 
Now, we've had some economic data out of the mainland. Manufacturing activity contracted in January for the fourth month in a row. The official MBS manufacturing PMI was 49.2 in uh, January. That's the fourth straight month of contraction uh, in factory activity. The non-manufacturing PMI... Uh, did climb a little bit to 50.7, 13th straight month of expansion there in the services activity. Um, Andrew Sullivan, we, we've had a lot of uh, talk about stimulus, but it doesn't seem to be helping that much, does it? Well, I, th- I think there's very little they can really do. I mean, it, it's, this is really down to, to, you know, if they want to get the domestic consumption going, then they've got to get domestic confidence back. Uh, and with the overhang of the property sector, and, and to be fair to, you know, global demand slowing and, and China really being in the sin bin for the, for, with a lot of countries at the moment, people are just not seeing exports demand come through. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, from the Canton fairs and, and other fairs around the country, people are seeing this, you know, firsthand uh, and that's hurting the business confidence and, and, and hence the domestic confidence um the fact that you know they, they're feeling poorer as they see property values continue to decline which is their store of wealth which is almost like looking at your bank account going down every day uh, again that's not going to help them um so they've heard the story before that you know the the, the the Beijing says, oh, we're going to do support measures, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Um, they've grown tired of hearing the rhetoric. They want to see the facts. Uh, and the reality is that that Beijing isn't going to, you know, isn't going to come out with a, a huge financial stimulus. Uh, it's going to try and promote other things. Uh, and people just aren't impressed by that anymore. Andrew Ferris, and any bright spots that you can see here? Yeah, yeah there's something which is, uh, which is interesting. It was actually in the news. And that is that the sales of the 100 biggest real estate, real estate companies in China actually came down by 34% in, in January. And actually, I have a chart in front of me that shows that from February 22, February 22, till now, there were only four months where sales were positive growth. The rest of them were all negative growth. In other words, this really matches my favorite index of uh, the 70, the sales of uh, newly built homes in 70 big and small cities in China, okay, that has been shrinking now for nearly 22 months. Before we go. With the Evergrande, with, with Evergrande on top of that, all you can say, you know, shake your fist up to the God and say, thanks very much. That was really, really timely. Thanks. Thanks for telling me. Okay. <laughs> let, let me, before you go, get your thoughts on the markets. The Hang Seng, another bad month, down 9.2% last month. Shanghai's, uh, the China's CSI 300 um, has slipped now to a five-year low. That's despite all the short-selling bans uh, that have been uh, imposed. Andrew Sullivan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, short selling bans don't really help anybody. I mean, the reality is that Hong Kong is now back to where we were at the time of the handover. We've gone up and we've come all the way back down again. Uh, and that really reflects the fact that, you know, at the time of the handover, we saw China opening up and liberalizing its policies. Uh, and then for the last 10 years, we've seen China reverse that and tighten its policies. And uh, and the net result is that uh, it just goes to show, I think, that you know Beijing's main policies aren't working as far as Hong Kong is concerned, or for China, for that matter. Andrew Ferris, final thoughts from you on the, on the markets here. Where do we go from here? Well, again, I'll revert back to my, to my almost favourite gesture. All this has happened, as you say, a really bad day at the uh, Hansen Index. 
And Powell comes out and says, we ain't no cutting interest rates, you guys. Okay. <laughs> so more fists raised up upwards and says, thanks very much, God. That's another big good news for, for the Hansen Index. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts there. You heard um, Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Andrew Sullivan, who is the founder of Asian Market Sense. I'm joined now by Peter Kim, who is head of global investment strategy at KB Financial Group in Seoul. Morning, Peter. Morning, morning. Um, let me get your thoughts first of all on the Fed that left interest rates unchanged. No surprise there. Um, there was something for everything uh, for everyone in the statement because they sort of removed uh, their hiking bias, but then also admitted that they're not close to easing yet either. So what 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 do we make of this? Um, I think uh, last time we chatted, uh, I felt that the market was getting ahead of itself as it now does uh, with the amount of uh, frequency that we've never seen before. Uh, I think uh, March cut was ambitious, mm-hmm. but nowadays markets, uh, once it takes momentum, it almost runs on its own fumes uh, rather than looking at it with a certain amount of uh, calm. So um, not a surprise, but I think the markets constantly goes from massive excitement to massive disappointments. And today we have a disappointment. Mm. Uh, the Fed said, Jerome Powell said in the, the conference, uh, the media conference after the meeting, that he wanted to be sure that inflation was going to get back down to 2% and stay there. I'm wondering what it will be that will make him feel confident about that, because I can see a number of things on the horizon that could lead to inflation spiking back up again. Yeah, time. You need time. I mean, you know, the data points are so scattered, dispersed, uh, and within a certain uh, uh, level of expectations, uh, any one of those data could disappoint one way or another. So um, what he's looking for is a you know a period of certain stability, consistency with the data points, enough for them to feel comfortable. And really, you know, the market's trying to uh, dissect what that data points are. I mean, micro micro analyzing these data points so closely that markets tends to do. To me, it's uh, misleading, and mm. as as you've seen in the past few weeks, markets still seem to want to keep fighting the Fed, though, even after today, don't they? I mean, you look at bond yields; they decline quite sharply um, in in the U.S. despite the Fed, in effect, taking a March rates cut off the table. You know, it's almost like the financial markets are sending signals to pressure uh, the central banks to see it their way, mm. not the other way around, uh, these, which is sort of uh, uh, probably the legacy of, uh, you know, two years ago when uh, the Fed sort of lost the control of the markets. And, you know, they called it a period of uh, the markets being unhinged from inflation and the uh, central bank communique. Uh, So I think they're still trying to establish that credibility and that authority. So I think we have a very interesting tussle between markets and central bank. And from an investment perspective, how do you navigate all of this? Well, so uh, last couple of months ago when we chatted, I said the markets uh, is probably uh, uh, due for a short-term correction. uh, And that correction seems to be happening now. Um, I think the greater question is that, you know, at what point do you want to get back in? Mm. Uh, U.S. is still the pillar of global growth. I don't see, 
anything close to challenging uh, the the balance between uh, growth and stability that U.S. has produced, maybe with a Japan distant second. Uh, but um, I think uh, um, the U.S. market is still very healthy. It has economy that's uh, on a good footing. Uh, inflation uh, may come under control in the next few months. And I think that we're off to the races again. I suppose if you're looking from a global perspective, you also have to take into account what's going on here in China as well, don't you? The Hang Seng Index, uh, another bad month in January, lost another 9%. It's now back below the level it was at the time of the handover back in 1997. So basically, you've made nothing uh, in that intervening uh, period. The Shanghai Composite, um, the, the sorry, the CSI 300 um, is at a five-year low. Um, what what are your thoughts? Where do you see this ending? <laughs> I don't know how it'll end, but I think uh, um, if there was any uh, debate about China decoupling from the U.S. in particular, I mean, financial markets already done that. I mean, S&P all-time high, China almost most recent history all-time low. Um, I think now the greater question is that you know, uh, when will China start to really see this as a, uh, a, a, a top priority, not only to arrest the market fall, but it's really signaling the underlying concerns on the economy, future trade relations, uh, geopolitical tensions, uh, and everything included. Uh, and I think, uh, um, you know, China is in that very rare spot of clearly being behind the curve. They've been very, very good at being ahead of the curve, being very diligently uh, about watching the market signals, uh, where they are missing. Uh, I think that that's, uh, markets are showing their concern. Um, I think it requires a lot of uh, uh, consistency, transparency for an extended period in order to get that credibility back. Do you think the authorities are at that point yet where this is serious enough to be um, a top priority? I mean, they've, they've rolled out Premier Li Chang now to basically say, you know, we're going to take forceful measures to support the markets. In his words, we've had this rolling out of um, triple R cuts. There's talk of a bailout fund. Um, they've banned short selling. They've even banned long funds from selling um, yeah, as well. Yeah. None of this seems to be helping, though. Part of the problem seems to be that the talk hasn't been backed up by a lot of action. That's right. That's one problem. But the talk itself is very artificial. You know, we've seen a number of these sort of, you know, market stability measures. You know, markets are reflecting the deeper concerns of the economy, outlook, the, all those factors that I mentioned. If they start to address those, the markets will take care of itself. But rather than just sort of making, well, you know, uh, uh, active buying into these stocks, uh, you know, trying to make, uh, you know, marginal cuts in the uh, reserve rate, those are, uh, are short-term measures. It's a band-aid over what is a becoming a very big, big wound. Mm. I think we've seen in the past, haven't we, in your markets over there and other markets around the world, banning short selling has maybe a short-term impact at most, but doesn't really, um, but doesn't really last. And, and similarly, um, trying to restrict funds from selling stocks, introducing new investment products, none of that really works in the long term, does it? No, in, in an environment where the you have this exodus of capital from foreign foreign investors, 
trying to uh, find alternatives. If you make this short-term measure, it actually only does is that it provides the opportunity to sell more into mm-hmm. the balance. And I think uh, last couple of days, we've seen that after the initial bounce, uh, you know, you've had sellers coming back in. It's almost like giving them a second second shot at selling for those who didn't sell previously. So um, uh, again, I think, um, you know, you got to go to the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is that more structural reform, go back to some of the the, the uh, virtues that, that China has established, which is to, to cater to market forces. And uh, and these measures simply gives them uh, maybe even a greater conviction that uh, uh, policies are moving in the other direction. I suppose the problem, though, for Beijing is that to get to the heart of the problem and to start enacting these structural reforms, they've also got to take a step back and admit that their previous policies haven't worked and, and were wrong, which is something that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't like doing. No. Uh, and who would who would be brave enough to urge him to do so, uh, you know. And it's not uh, China's not unique uh, in that uh, situation, is it? Uh, we have uh, a lot of governments around the world uh, who are very, very polarized in their political views, and that is affecting their economic policies. So I wouldn't sort of single out China as being the only one, but obviously China's big and it's relevant. It's within the vicinity of where we uh, live. I mean, it's, it is right at the forefront of that uh, uh, trend. The, the problem is also that um, confidence among businesses, among consumers, has just been absolutely crushed on the mainland. Consumers don't want to spend. Businesses don't want to invest. It's sort of become a bit of a downward spiral, hasn't it? How do they get themselves out of that and start rebuilding confidence? That's exactly why that this need requires a systematic, sustained structural fixes. Um, I don't think there is a short-term quick fix that will turn this thing around. Uh, and I think it requires a probably a year at least of consistent transparency uh, and uh, to get, get that confidence back. Uh, you know, not just investors, investor confidence, consumer confidence, corporate confidence to invest. I mean, it's all sort of uh, a same ship, uh, ship that's, you know, being quite wobbly at the moment. The, the problem is this is going to be very difficult, these structural reforms, because some of them are almost intractable now. I mean, the property market, it's going to take years, isn't it, to sort that out. The losses are so great. We're going to see that through the, liquid, uh, the liquidation of Evergrande we might get a sense now of just how big the uh, the losses really are. And then also, uh, China has demographics against it as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, declining birth rates. These are problems that are not going to be very easy to fix, if at all. Well, so we do have a, a good precedent, don't we, in Japan? Japan. Japan. <laughs> uh, so it took Japan good almost 30 years to turn that ship around. Uh, I think the good news is that this, if you compare Japan's 30 years and China now, the the elements which drag down Japan is not as severe as, uh, as it is for China at the moment yet. Uh, Japan had uh, its currency doubling against the dollar, um, which dragged down its uh, exporters. And the domestic side, its property market prices were falling for 20 years at that really just sunk the domestic consumer. And then, uh, you know, uh, causality-wise, you had the demographics just just dragging the entire thing down. China don't have, have, don't have the currency issue. 
they don't yet have the property market prices uh, falling. Uh, uh, they do have the demographic uh, problem. But if you look at it in, in its entirety, uh, China still has op opportunities to turn around and, uh, and not fall into 20, 30 years of growth spiral. Mm. I, I suppose a big difference, though, between China and Japan then at the beginning of its lost decades was Japan had already got rich. China hasn't had a chance yet uh, to get rich, has it? And its per capita income, income is still quite low uh, by international standards. And all this is happening um, before really people have started to feel um, wealthy or yeah, even be yeah. wealthy. Yeah, I mean, so that, uh, you know, the uh, that middle income trap that uh, people talked about from these e uh, emerging economies really uh, come closer, I think, uh, for China. Um, uh, it can really just uh, lock itself up, be, be a very domesticated economy that just serves itself, but it, that doesn't uh, uh, help its growth uh, at all. Uh, I really do think that uh, the window is still there for China to uh, turn it around, but I think it starts from uh, its uh, political uh, stance, and then you start to expand that out to economic policies. Peter, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. That's Peter pleasure. Kim, who is Head of Global Investment Strategy at KB Financial Group in Seoul. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow with the final Money Talk of the week, and then I'll be joined by Francis Lun, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Kenny Wen, Head of Investment Strategy at KGI Asia. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO of Staten Partners. Have a good day. Money Talk. 